1 Timothy. I should have started by asking you a Bible trivia question. Once upon a time, a long time ago, when I was young and had a fresher mind, (laughs) um, I was at Word of Life Bible Camp, or whatever you call it, um, we used to go every year, and this, we were at this particular time, it was summer, and my husband and I were down in the Florida camp, Word of Life, and Erwin Lutzer was one of the speakers, and one night they decided that they would have a Bible trivia game together. You know, we weren't having a conference meeting, we weren't having a Bible study, they were just having a kind of a game time. So somebody in the crowd volunteered me, was happened to be Bonnie Pocock, for those of you who know Bonnie. <laughs> and um, I was up there on the stage in a Bible trivia game against Erwin Lutzer. You talk about pressure. How many of you know who Erwin Lutzer is? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the good news is I defeated him. <laughs> Only because he missed his question before I missed my question. But you know what I got as a prize? One of his books, <laughs> which was a good, very good prize. And I had him sign it right there and then. But my, my question that I, that I wound up, you know, missing was what New Testament epistle, in what New Testament epistle do we find the name Pontius Pilate? And I was stumped. Uh, oh, you know, not the Gospels, what New Testament epistle? And I just guessed and I was wrong, but I'll never forget the answer. <laughs> it's First Timothy, First Timothy, as we're going to read this morning, okay? Let's look at First Timothy 6 and verse 13. This is the only time in the New Testament other than the Gospels where we find the name Pontius Pilate. And I want to read this this morning before we turn over to John 18, because actually what it says here is in reference to when the Lord stood before Pilate during his trials and gave a good confession. So that he was an example to us. If we ever happen to be facing persecution and maybe on trot in, in a trial situation even for our faith, or maybe even just witnessing to somebody, he's our example. And how he, how he um, spoke to Pilate was a good confession, we are told by the Apostle Paul. So let's look at verse 13. Paul says to young Timothy, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth or maketh alive all things. And he makes his charge before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The good confession of the Lord Jesus Christ as he stood on trial before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. All right, now turn over to John 18 because that's where we'll stay parked this morning. And let's have a prayer and then we'll get into our study. John 18. And then if you'll bow with me. Father, we do thank you so much for the example you give us in everything through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him. We thank you that he was so willing to come to this earth, to step into the praetorium of this world, and, to, and where, where everything is so defiled, but not defile himself, but offer to us his righteousness freely. And we thank you for that truth. And we thank you, Lord. For this day you have given to us, it is the day you have made, and we will rejoice in it. Thank you for life. Thank you for every heartbeat that you give us. And Father, as we think about the fact that all things are given by you, every good and perfect gift cometh from above, we thank you for our lives, and we pray that we can use them um, wisely, not frivolously, but redeem our time wisely, because the days are evil and the time is short. And one day we'll look back and just wish that we had done more. So may we not have regret. May we fill every day with thoughts put captive to you and always think, what could I do today for my Lord and Savior? Lord, now I just pray that you will bless this time together, that your Holy Spirit will have his will and way in every heart here. You will help your servant to get through everything I have before me that I want to share with these women and that you indeed will lift up your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw all men to him, for we pray in his name. Amen. One thing I didn't mention last week, which I thought was interesting, I happened to find out, and I'm going to throw it out to you. I don't know the significance of it, but do you know when we studied the Lord's three-phased religious trials, we covered 40 verses. There are 40 verses in the four Gospels that talk about his religious trials. 
before Caiaphas, you know, Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. How many verses do you think there are that discuss his uh, Roman trials, his civil trials? More than double, more than 80 verses. So you know what you're all thinking? Oh, if we spent six weeks on the, <laughs> the religious trials, how many weeks are we going to spend on the... I don't know what the significance of that is, other than what we just read in, in Timothy, the Lord is our example. He gave a good profession before Pontius Pilate. And perhaps the reason is because he knew that more of his followers would stand before civil authorities to give an account, you know, if they're being persecuted for their faith, than Jewish. How many of us ever fear standing before Jewish authorities? Not really, and not many of us would. The early church, some of them did. But even Paul, you know, he stood before Gallio and Festus and... Um, who else? Who else did he stand for? Festus and Felix and, and Agrippa? Agrippa, yeah. And so the Lord probably knew that more Christians would have to give an account and stand before Gentile authorities than Jewish authorities. And maybe that's the reason, but more than double on the Roman trials. All right, it was, you know, very highly, highly suspicious to Pontius Pilate that the accusations the Jewish religious rulers brought before him regarding this man, Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, he would not have called him Christ, um, accusations that dealt with sedition against Rome and against Caesar, it was highly suspicious to Pilate that they were made by men who themselves abhorred the yoke of Rome's oppression. Pilate wasn't fooled at all by their sudden display of, of loyalty to Rome. You know, these Sanhedrinists, he knew, aided Rome. So, what we find is that he really dismissed from his mind immediately the first three charges that they brought before him against Jesus. Number one, that he was a malefactor, kakopoios, one who continuously does evil. He had heard about Jesus. He knew that that didn't match up with this man who everyone said did, did good, so did so much good. He also dismissed the fact that Jesus was perverting the nation and that he was forbidding the Jewish people to pay tribute to Rome. However, Pilate was compelled to do something about the charge that Jesus claimed to be Christ the King. If he dismissed that particular charge, then what would those conniving Jews do? Well, remember now, they hated him as much as he hated them. They would likely accuse him before Caesar for not taking seriously someone who was a royal rival. They would run to Caesar, they'd be tattletales and say, he did nothing about a man who claims to be king of Israel. You see, a claim to kingship over one of Rome's provinces or nations was uh, um, considered treason against Caesar, Caesar and was worthy of a death sentence. Tiberius Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor at this time, and he was a man who was not known for dealing kindly with those who um, did not demonstrate the utmost loyalty to him. His own officials, he was not known as being kind to them. And Pontius Pilate was one of his officials. By the way, this is interesting, and we'll talk about it in another week or so, but Pontius Pilate's wife, you all know her because she has a dream and she comes into the picture, but she was actually Tiberius Caesar's granddaughter, one of his granddaughters. So Pilate had for a grandfather-in-law the emperor. So he needed to be on his best behavior. And he's already been in trouble. He's been on thin ice with this man several times already. We'll discuss that, I think, next week, some of the trouble he's gotten into because of being governor over these stubborn people, the Jews. So he's already in trouble. So the clever, you see what the Jews had done? These clever Jews had changed or turned the charge of blasphemy against God, which he knew, they knew the Romans would care less about. Why would Pilate care if a man blasphemed the Jewish God? So they had turned the charge of blasphemy against God to the charge of treason against Caesar. And since Jesus was now accused of making himself out to be a king, Pilate knew that he would have to make an inquiry about it. 
He would have to inquire, you know, let the defendant speak for himself. And he would have to investigate this situation more closely in order to protect his own position. So he couldn't just dismiss the whole situation like he wanted to do. So today's lesson, which is part two of our look at the Lord's first Roman trial as he appeared for the first time before Pontius Pilate, this uh, lesson deals with Pilate's dialogue with the prisoner, with Christ himself. Remember, after having come out of the praetorium or the judgment hall, because the Jews wouldn't go in, they wouldn't defile himself, after Pilate had come out, he dialogued with the Jews. And what did he ask? It was the first thing out of his mouth. What's the accusation? I mean, that makes sense, right? You've got a prisoner. What's the charge against him? Well, after he had done that and found out the charges, he went back inside. And remember, we're going to see him going back and forth, inside, outside, inside, outside. And that just pictures, that pattern there pictures his wavering. He's a compromiser. But now he goes back inside and he calls Jesus to stand before him. And his first question to Jesus is a very important one. And we know this because that question is found in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the question itself and the back and forth response to it took up most of this first interview between Pilate and the Lord. So let's look at it now. And for this, we're going to look at verses 33 to 38 in John 18. All right, starting at verse 33 where it says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus. The word called in Greek is aloud. He, he yelled. He called him loudly. I don't know why, but he did. He called loudly to Jesus and said unto him, Art thou? I'm putting the emphasis on the thou. I want you to notice that. Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. And if I wasn't delivered to the Jews, guess what? I wouldn't be delivered to you because they delivered me to you. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Pilate wasted absolutely no time in going to the heart of the issue by asking the question of Jesus, Art thou? Art thou the king of the Jews? And I, this is interesting. I told you not only do all four Gospels have that question, but they all state it identically, which is sometimes rare. You know, sometimes you'll look at another Gospel and have the same question, but it's worded a little bit differently. Here, they're all worded exactly the same. And I want you to know that the way I read it is correct because the Greek puts the emphasis on the, word, on the pronoun thou. So it's like you can sing, art thou? The king of the Jews? And when you, when you read it that way, you definitely hear the obvious tone of scorn and disdain that Pilate intended. You see, to him, it was just unbelievable. It was incredulous that the man standing before him, bound and battered and bruised and bleeding with spit uh, smeared on his face and on his beard and his garment, that he could possibly can be considered a threat to Caesar. He looked nothing at all like a king. Would he have looked like a king at this point in time? No, nothing like a king. He far more resembled a man who had been in a refugee camp and had been battered by a bunch of barbarians. 
Nothing about his physical appearance um, suggested royalty. In fact, even if you could overlook the bruises and the blood, it was obvious that he was a man who was not wealthy. If you looked at Jesus, you would know that he was a poor man. And, you know, you usually equate a king with, with wealth, right? But here, Jesus was just a poor man. And because we know, too, that the Lord had been up all night, or a good deal of the night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, battling with evil forces, where he had experienced such agony of soul that he had actually had blood come out of his pores, we know, too, that he would look very tired and worn. Plus, he hadn't slept since Tuesday night. And so his eyes would have been red, and they would have been swollen, and his face definitely would have been swollen from all the, the fist punches that he had received earlier. So by the time Jesus stood before Pilate, he would have appeared about as far from a king as a man could get. And Pilate would have seen something else in Jesus, too. Beside, you know, being an astute man, which he was, to be in the political position he's in, he was an astute person, he was a politician, he would have um, noticed the Lord's countenance. He would have taken note, especially of, of Jesus' eyes and his facial expression, which would not have reflected any of the rebellious traits or the zealous patriotism that he would be used to seeing in the looks and in the snarls of Jewish insurrectionists. For example, what if he had Barabbas standing in front of him? Do you not think that man's eyes would be glaring at him and he'd have that stubborn look, you know, of, of rebellion and bitterness in his face? But Jesus displayed none of that. We know that because he was sinless and there wouldn't have been any hatred or any, any bitterness in his heart. Nothing but a look of love. We're going to see his concern is really for Pilate's soul here. So that was unusual to see such a countenance on a man. If this man, Jesus, was claiming kingship, he certainly was a different kind of king um, than any Pilate had ever seen. And then, too, we can speculate that news of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just a few days earlier, this is Thursday morning, his entrance into Jerusalem would have just been that past Sunday. You know, with thousands and thousands of people standing on the roadside hailing Jesus as he came into the city with their palm branches and shouting Hosanna to the son of David, that news of all of that would have gotten to Pilate's ears, right? I mean, it would just be almost impossible to think that it wouldn't have. And surely he had heard about it, and yet did Jesus, when the word got to him, did, Jesus, did he get the report that Jesus came riding in on a white stallion? Now, that might be a problem. But instead, what? Am I hearing this right? He came riding in on a lowly little donkey? That certainly doesn't sound like any kind of king the world would be familiar with. That doesn't sound like a rival to Caesar, does it? What type of king would make his grand entrance on a little donkey? And the Jewish officials by the way, disapproved immensely of the entire affair. They wanted him to quit and not let the people shout out Hosanna. If Jesus truly was their king, then uh, wouldn't these officials be backing him up? Furthermore, Pilate would have also been given the report that Jesus gave no great speeches that day. He did indeed go straight to the temple and all the Jews were expecting some kind of a great speech, weren't they? to rally around him all the, all the people and say, come on, let's fight against Rome, let's defeat Rome and, and overthrow Caesar. But there had been no kind of speech that day at all. Um, and so, although this meek one before him was a very curious individual, one who so attracted the common multitudes, but was so hated by their leaders, yet... Pilate would have to admit that there was nothing about him that seemed to threaten Caesar or Rome. What was Pilate doing here? Well, he was doing exactly what Jesus had warned against doing back in John 7:24, when he had said, Judge not according to appearance. What was Pilate doing? Art thou a king? He was judging the book by its, by its cover. He was, you know, God sees, but not as man sees, for God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He also said, judge righteous judgment. 
Well, does Pilate wind up doing that? No, he doesn't. He tried, but he failed because he was a compromiser. So how did the Lord answer Pilate's question, Art thou the king of the Jews? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we didn't go there. They only have one verse on all this conversation. But all three of those guys tell us that he said, in answer to the question, Art thou the king of the Jews? First of all, he said, Thou sayest it. And what does that mean? Yes, yes, you said it, it's true. Had not this been the case from the very beginning? Do you remember those wise men who came to look for, they went to Herod the Great, and who did they ask for? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And isn't this what Jesus, when he began his public ministry, even before him, actually, his forerunner, um, gave the same message that Jesus did at the beginning of his, his ministry. And what was that message that both John and Jesus gave? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In, in what sense was the kingdom at hand? It was in the sense that the king was here. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. The reason the kingdom was at hand was because the king himself was at hand. Actually, he had arrived. And if the nation had submitted to his authoritative word and recognized him as her king, she would have had at that time the kingdom on earth. Those individuals who did submit to him as Lord and king of their lives and who still do, instantly do become citizens of his kingdom. They come out of the kingdom of darkness and they become a kingdom of, of light, a citizen of the kingdom of his light. But right now, his kingdom is a spiritual one, isn't it? I mean, we don't have a literal kingdom right here on earth. I wish we did <laughs> with him reigning. But um, it still hasn't come yet where his kingdom today is invisible and it exists within the hearts of his, of his uh, believers, followers. He has a kingdom in heaven. Isn't that why we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he does have a kingdom in heaven. And he does have a kingdom here, and it exists today within those who are members of his body, his church. But his, his actual kingdom hasn't come, literal, physical kingdom. But they could have had it at that time if they submitted to the king, but they didn't. And uh, so from the very beginning, he, he preached that he was a king. That's actually what the whole book of Matthew is about, Christ the king. And remember just a little while ago as he was standing before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas... Uh, adjured him under oath to answer the question, Art thou the Christ, the Son of God? And in answering that question, Jesus referred in part to Daniel 7, where he proclaimed before this council that he was the Son of Man who will one day receive from the Ancient of Days, what? The universal, eternal, indestructible kingdom. So he had affirmed from the beginning of his ministry to the end, he had affirmed that he was indeed the king of the Jews. Well then, according to verse 34, the Lord went on. After Matthew, Mark, and Luke told us, he said, Thou hast said, I am a king. I am the king of the Jews. Then he went on, and John's the only one who tells us this, to answer Pilate's question by asking a question of his own. Now, isn't that unusual? No, not at all. He usually, that's how he usually answered questions, was with questions of his own. Especially was it his common method when he was trying to attempt to get a person to make a personal examination of his or her own heart. And that's what he's trying to do here. The Lord is addressing Pilate's conscience with a penetrating question about his own beliefs, about Pilate's own beliefs. He asks Pilate, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee of me? He was asking Pilate about the source of his question. Did Pilate ask the question if he was the king of the Jews because he personally wanted to know, are you the king of the Jews? Or was he asking it just in his, you know, as a professional man because that accusation had been brought to him by the Jews and he needed to make an inquiry? Did Pilate have some personal interest in wanting to know about Jesus and his kingship? Or was he merely asking because it was required of him in his professional position? 
You see, what Jesus was doing here was what he always did. He was throwing out a lure and hoping for a bite. He was fishing for men. And isn't it just, again, so very, very typical of our compassionate, selfless Lord and Savior that at a time when he could be so focused on himself because he's already begun his sufferings, hasn't he? And he knew he was going to be hanging on a cross in a matter of just hours. And yet his concern was not at all for himself. He's our example, our pattern. If it comes to the point where any of us ever have to stand before a court of law for our profession of faith, and it may get to that point if the Lord delays, some people already are in our country. We know they are in other countries, but if it gets to that point, let's remember our Lord's good profession, his good confession. He wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about winning others in that courtroom. If you're there, for, die to self. Don't get bitter. Don't have a look of hatred on your face. And, you know, why me? My rights, that sort of thing. Have this good profession so maybe the judge, maybe someone in the jury, maybe someone in the, in the audience will actually bite the lure that you throw out about your good confession of faith. So let's remember this. He is our example here. He's not concerned about himself. He never was. Never once was his focus on himself. He was always either concerned about pleasing his father or pursuing people with truth for their souls. And when he was pursuing people with truth for their souls, what was he doing? Pleasing the father. So he was all about pleasing the father and doing the father's will. His concern here was for the eternal soul of a Roman official, a lost man. Didn't matter to him if he was Jew or Gentile, did it? No, his concern was for his soul. He's trying to get this proud politician to think for himself. The Lord's question is really the same penetrating twofold question that he had asked his own men earlier in his ministry. Back in Matthew 16, remember when he turned to his disciples and he asked them, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am. Who do others say that I am? And remember, they answered by saying, well, some think you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some think that you're Elijah come back. Some think you're Jeremiah, and others just think you're another one of the prophets. But then the important question, he turned to them and he said, but who do you say that I am? That's the key question of life and death and eternity. That's exactly what he's doing with Pilate here. You know, are you asking because you want to know or just because you're parroting what you've heard from others? You know, you're just... That's it. What, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Is your opinion simply based on what others have said about him? Now I'm asking you. There's a lot of people who come to church and they just believe... Well, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and they only believe it really because their parents believe it, maybe and their grandparents believe it, and they've always been in this church. And, um, or they don't believe in him because someone else said, ah, you can't believe in Jesus Christ, that's just mythology, that's not true, he, da, 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 and they believe that, right? They believe what others have told them. But the, the important thing is, is your opinion of who Jesus Christ is truly your own opinion that you have searched and you have found out that he truly is who he said he was christ the king the son of the living god that's important that you have that personal knowledge yourself well by his return question the lord was really turning the issue over to Pilate, wasn't he he was putting the ball in Pilate's court who's really on trial jesus or Pilate? Pilate's on trial here for his eternal soul He was not evading the question. Jesus is not evading Pilate's question. Rather, he's trying to get the man to think through the matter for himself. He wanted Pilate to take a personal interest in his claims, not just merely have an official concern for his own neck, you know, and his relationship to his (laughs) grandfather-in-law. But as is true with most proud men, unfortunately, especially men in positions of prominence and authority, Pilate did not like his conscience being tampered with. So sad. 
It doesn't appear, when you read this, it doesn't appear that he even hesitated for a moment, not even a second, to consider who he might think Jesus really is. You know he's heard about Jesus' miracles. He's been the governor since 27 A.D. Jesus started his ministry in 29 A.D. So he's heard all about this man who's gone through the whole nation, healing people, and, you know, he's heard the reports. But he doesn't even for a minute hesitate to think about who he might think this guy is, Jesus. He had no intention of getting personally involved in Jewish religious matters, which is evidenced by his very quick and highly sarcastic comment, which is given in a question form, but he doesn't really expect an answer when he says what? Am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? You see, this was the response of a Roman commander of cohorts, the, the legal political representative of a great um, empire that had the whole known world in its, in its iron clasp. His response reflected Roman pride and Roman prejudice against the Jews. Isn't it something? I mean, prejudice is so incredibly stupid. I just hate it. The Jews were prejudiced against the Gentiles and looked down their long, pious nose at the Gentiles. And the Gentiles looked down their long noses at the Jews. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. But he, did, he was just as biased as they were. And he looked down his nose at their entire ethnic and religious system, which I can hardly blame him about there because they were such a bunch of hypocrites. But people everywhere do just what Pilate did when they try to evade the issue of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing. He's just evading the issue of seriously thinking about Jesus. Don't people come up with all manner of excuses? Haven't you found that to be true? When you bring up the subject of Jesus, some of them can't wait to get away from you. Or they'll immediately change the subject. You know, if you get one of those telemarketers, just start talking about Jesus, they'll hang up on you. You don't have to hang up on them. They'll t- <laughs> some, some will say that they're just too busy. Have you heard this excuse when you invite somebody to Bible study? Oh, they're just too busy with this and with that, with life, you know, and with the concerns of life to, to bother with such things. Some will say, as did my own father, some will say this. And this reminds me of Pilate. That, and my own father said this. He said, Jesus was Jewish. I'm Greek. He was for the Jewish people. I don't need to have any concern for a Jewish man. You know who my father's favorite person was? A Greek. Socrates. He said to me, Socrates was a greater man than Jesus. Socrates was Greek. How silly. How silly. But that's what Pilate does, isn't it? I'm a Roman. I'm a Gentile. Am I Jewish? Why would I care about a Jewish Messiah? And then some people say there are so many different ideas and concepts about Jesus out there, which there are, that the matter is just too muddied for him to be who he really claimed to be. And that's a shame. Again, they should investigate the matter for themselves and look at the book that reveals him instead of listening to what other people say that does muddy the water. Here's where we find out about him, right? as we've been doing for umpteen million years. (laughs) And then there are those that aren't even civil about it. They're just downright nasty and antagonistic about the claims of Christ. And, you know, say it's just he was just too narrow and he we're intolerant and all that sort of thing. So there was, first of all, in Pilate's response, his evasion of the issue when he asked the question, am I a Jew? And secondly, there was his exposure of the evil. So his evasion of the issue and his exposure of the evil of the Jews. When he went on to say, thine own nation and the chief priests, the leaders of your nation, have delivered thee unto me. Remember that word? Also means betrayed. They have betrayed you unto me. This, you see, is an indictment of the nation of Israel. And of, of, her, of her leaders, especially of her leaders. And it explains to us why the Jewish people have been judged by God so harshly over the past 2,000 years. They betrayed their own Messiah, the Son of the living God, into the hands 
of the Gentiles, represented by Pilate, in order to be killed. You have to admit that's a pretty grave sin. And they have suffered for it. Did any of you hear Benjamin Netanyahu's speech last night? Oh, I really like that man. I wish he would get saved. Anyway, he, you know, it, we're, we're close to the end. I, Israel is not going to be patient too much longer with what is going on in Iran. I mean, if it looks like a duck, if it sounds like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. That was his words last night about Iran, Iran's nuclear armament pro, pro, program. You know, they're not, they're not about making m- medical isotopes. <laughs> I mean, you have to be pretty dumb to, to believe that. Anyhow, <clears throat> how did I get off into that? How did I... Oh, why they, why they have been suffering, you know, and they're, and they're still. Uh, Iran wants to wipe them off the face of the earth, don't they? And who would be next? The little Satan and then the great Satan would be us. We do live in dangerous, perilous times. It is true, however, that one day, just like Joseph's brothers who hated him and wanted to kill him, but they wound up selling him for 20 pieces of silver, thought he was dead, found out, ah, he wasn't dead after all. And they, when they recognized him, what did they do? Just like his dream earlier, they fell down before him, bowed before him, and and repented of what they had done to him. Just like that picture and type of Jesus in Israel, one day his brethren, the Jews, will acknowledge, they will recognize him. When he returns at his second coming, all Israel will be saved. She will mourn for him as an only son. And I long for that day, but that day has not yet come. I can't wait to see that day. Can you? We'll be there with the Lord when he returns. And we will see Israel as a nation corporately. What's left of her, two-thirds of her, will be wiped out. That's what the Bible says. I hate to think about it, but they will. But the remnant will believe, finally, on their king and Messiah. But it was puzzling. to, And you can understand why Pilate was puzzled. Puzzled Pilate. You like that? Puzzled Pontius Pilate. <laughs> it was puzzling to him why the chief priests were so intense with malice against Jesus. There was something strange about it because normally, normally their hatred was aimed at him. Normally, they were eager to encourage anyone who might come along and try to promote national independence from the clutches of Rome. So Pilate wondered why Jesus' own people were so bitterly against him that they wanted him crucified. So what's he ask next? He has five questions altogether. His next question is, what have you done? What in the world have you done that has caused your own people to turn you over to me and that they are, you know, thirsty for your blood? Now, this is one of your homework questions. You only have a few questions left in your lesson 170. I think it's 7 through 10, and then there's a bonus question. So here's another question for you to discuss in your groups next week. This will be fun for you. Answer Pilate's question. What had Jesus done? Now, Jesus doesn't really answer it directly. But what could you have said Jesus has done? All right? I'm going to give you a few ideas. There are lots of ways that Jesus could have answered Pilate's question, what have you done? There are lots of answers to that question that are given to us in the scripture. For example, and you can't use this one because I'm going to use it. (laughs) For example, there's John 1, 3. What has Jesus done? Well, let's begin with this. How's, how's this? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What has Jesus done? Created everything in the universe. And how about the fact that he did merciful things for great multitudes of people, like feed the hungry, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, exercise the demoniacs. And that doesn't mean he had, uh, you know, a Zumba class with all the... He expelled the demons from people. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He straightened the bent. He gave legs to the crippled. And he forgave the repentant sinners. Those are just some of the things he did. If Just think about it. If Jesus had stood there and given Pilate a detailed list of what he had done, (laughs) the two of them would have been there for a long, long time. Time because we read in John twenty one twenty five that in addition to all the mighty miracles and the and the marvelous messages of Jesus recorded in the gospel accounts, 
John says, there are also many other things which he did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. You know what that means? If John sat down to write everything that Jesus has ever done, there'd be so many books, the world could not contain them. And how long do you think we would be in our life of Christ study then? Actually, it's a foretaste of what we'll be doing throughout all of eternity, right? We'll be learning all eternity about the things that Jesus has done and continues to keep doing. And what's the manner in which everything he did was done? What does it say in Mark 7, 37? He hath done all things how? Well, he hath done all things well. But Jesus didn't give Pilate uh, even a synopsis report of all the mighty works of mercy he had done during his ministry. You know why? Because those were part of his messianic credentials, which were for Israel to recognize her Messiah when he came. Those credentials would mean very little to a Roman who knew probably very, very little about Old Testament scriptures, so Jesus doesn't give him his messianic credentials about what he has done. Instead, he gave an answer to Pilate that plainly showed that he was not guilty of any political evil, and he had no intention of doing anything against Caesar. Notice that the Lord ignored, completely ignored, Pilate's insulting question, am I a Jew? He didn't even address that at all. And he returned to the king question. Earlier, Pilate had said, art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus returns to the king question. Why? Because it's the king question. It's the key of everything, center of everything. And what does he answer? He says, my king, look at verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Now what I want to do is think of what he just said there in light of how Pilate would have heard it. Okay? First of all, as Pilate heard those words, it would be apparent to him that Jesus was saying he does have a kingdom. Right? He said, my kingdom twice. And he also has subjects because he said, my servants. So it would be very obvious to Pilate that Jesus was saying he has a kingdom. If he has a kingdom, therefore he is what? A king. A king. But then Jesus went on to clarify the nature of his kingdom. So let's look at what Jesus meant, first of all, when he said that his kingdom is not of this world. He's, there's several things that he doesn't mean when he said that and several things that he did mean. So let's look at that, first of all. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he did not mean that his kingdom is not active in this world. He was not saying that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Obviously, when he brings people, when they're born again and he brings people into his kingdom, you and I, as Christians, members, citizens of his kingdom, we do have an effect on this world. The early church, the apostles, had a great effect on this world. They turned this world upside down. It is not the same world that it is today before, than it was before, um, that it was before Christ came. We are the salt and light of this world, right? We preserve this world from total evil. I mean, it's bad, but it would be a whole lot bad, badder, <laughs> worse, if we were not here. The Holy Spirit within us restrains evil. So he wasn't saying that, um, you know, that his kingdom doesn't affect this world. Neither was he saying that there is not going to be an earthly kingdom. He was not denying a future earthly kingdom form, uh, uh, earthly form of his kingdom. So you cannot use his statement here to support an amillennial theology. The amillennialists are those who do not believe that there will be a literal 1,000-year kingdom here on earth with Jesus reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. Those are amillennials. You cannot use this verse for that. Jesus did preach that there would be a kingdom here on earth. Um, that's, you know, Daniel 7, when he receives the kingdom. And there's so much. You read the book of Revelation, literally talks about a thousand-year kingdom. That's why we pray. Again, I go back to the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer. It should be called, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And I could go on and on and tell you, you know, more proof about the literal kingdom. But you can't use this. 
Even, in fact, look at the end of the verse. He says, but now is my kingdom not hence. That's a fact, that's a hint that, yes, one day my kingdom will be here. When he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, he was responding to Pilate in the circumstances of that particular moment. You know, Pilate was inquiring as to whether or not Jesus was a king who would threaten Caesar. And Jesus was answering in reference to that point in time. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, it's not here yet. He implied that. But um, And then when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, a positive thing is that he was saying his kingdom has its origin somewhere else. His, its origin is not here on this earth, right? Literally, he said that his kingdom is not derived of this world. And to prove, we know his kingdom is in heaven, right? Again, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wherever the king is, the kingdom is. The kingdom exists in heaven. It pre-existed in heaven before it came to earth. One day it will back, come back to earth, and then one day it will be in the eternal heaven. You following me? But wherever the king is, that's where the kingdom is. <clears throat> but he says that his kingdom is not derived in this world. It didn't start here when Jesus was incarnated. That's not when his kingdom began. It's existed from eternity. Um, and, and to prove that his kingdom did not begin, was not born in this world, is not derived of this world, he went on to say that if it did, if it did originate in this world, then what? His servants would be fighting. They wouldn't have stood by and allowed him to be delivered over to the Jewish authorities. In the next verse, in 37, he tells Pilate that he came into the world. We'll talk about that more, but that means he came from somewhere else into this world. He pre-existed before he came to this world. His kingdom did not originate with a bunch of people meeting together and deciding on an armed uprising and fighting to conquer for him. I remember witnessing to a man a long time ago when I was younger, and this particular man made this comment. I got so mad I couldn't keep talking to him. But uh, he said, well, you know, I really can't believe in Christianity because it's only 2,000 years old. I prefer to go along with the Chinese because their religion goes way back, a lot further than Christianity. Is that true? Did Christianity really begin with the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? No, I hope you see that. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God first told Adam and Eve that he would send the seed of the woman. I mean, and it even goes into, pre, you know, pre-eternity. Or, no, there is no pre-eternity. <laughs> pre-eternity, I wonder what that is. My <laughs> but it goes way back to before the foundation of the earth was ever laid. It goes into, uh, I don't even remember what I'm trying to say. Eternity passed, yes, to the very beginning. When, you know, the triune God counseled together about the whole redemptive plan. That's when Christianity began. It didn't begin at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. The Chinese religion is not older than Christianity. But, you know, how do you reason with people like that who have their mindset? And again, never bothered to open up the Bible. He just had heard that from someone else. The present character of this kingdom, his kingdom, is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. The present character of his kingdom is not worldly. And his confirmation about his servants not fighting confirms that. This is what you see convinced Pilate that Jesus was not going to be a threat to the foundation of the Roman government. He realized it was true. Pilate knew that Jesus had many followers. He had, you know, heard or had seen all the multitudes gathered there that week that supported and liked Jesus. But guess what? They weren't fighting. They weren't fighting. If they were, he never would have been handed over to the Jews to begin with. Pilate would have been involved in, in trying to break up some kind of a battle that would be going on between the followers and the friends of Jesus and the religious authorities. That's why he went to Jerusalem was to, you know, be a peacemaker whenever they had little revolts and stuff. But if his if Jesus' servants were fighting, there would be a battle when the religious authorities came and tried to arrest Jesus and take him away. So Pilate knew. He realized that no, no such battle was going on. So Jesus wasn't a threat to Caesar. 
He believed him. He knew it was based on truth. You know, you and I, as Christians, as followers, servants of the Lord Jesus, are not called upon to advance the cause of his kingdom by violence. You do know that, right? We're not to, to, to um, advance the kingdom by the sword or by fighting. This is important for us to realize because Jesus used the fact that his servants do not fight as proof of the spiritual character of his, of his kingdom. And do you, when you look at it that way, do you realize how close Peter came to destroying that confirmation when he whipped out his sword, his little dagger, and cut off Malchus's ear? Peter, the lead apostle, almost destroyed the proof that the kingdom of God that Christ offers is different from this world, the kingdoms of this world. What do the kingdoms of this world do? What have they always done? Fight, 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 battle, 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 war, 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 and rumors of wars. They're always fighting. But he wanted to show his kingdom is different. Peter almost destroyed that. That's why the Lord had to intervene. And boy, did he do so quickly because I can't, I mean, those Romans were fast. I'm so surprised one didn't thrust a sword through Peter just like that. I mean, the Lord was quick when he intervened and he healed Malchus's ear and he reprimanded Peter publicly so that everyone there would know that what Peter had done was not in accordance with the will of his master. What did he say? Peter, um, put away your sword. For all they that take up the sword shall what? Perish with the sword. You know, you and I as followers of Christ are to do what? When someone, what do we do? I'm not going to hit myself as hard as I did yesterday. I hurt myself when I slapped myself. <laughs> we're to turn the other cheek. We're to pray for those who hate us. We're to, we're to um, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We're to pray for our enemies. And, um, you know, that's just, it has nothing to do with military, you know, and people like my son, you know, we are to defend our country, but we as individual Christians aren't to go out there and, and murder the abortion doctors. What kind of a picture, testimony does that give the world? That we're just like the rest of them? We're, you know, hate mongers. We're not to, to protest with hate placards that say we hate the homosexuals. Ah, of course not. We love them. They're sinners caught up in, in an addiction, just like some of us have been caught up in sin before we were saved. I mean, we're to love them and, and try to win them out of the, the kingdom of darkness and, and the bondage that they're in. Are we to burn the Koran like that pastor did down in Florida? No, no. Everything we do is to be different from what the world does. Um, and then remember the Lord went on to say that if he wanted to, he could have called down 12 legions of angels who could have been there at his beck and call. Those who take up the sword give the world a serious distortion of the spiritual character of Christ's kingdom. You know, to this day, Islamists refer to the slaughter of tens of thousands of Muslims and Jews that was done back in the Middle Ages by the Crusaders. They refer to that to say, look at these Christians. You know, they, they, they said that they were doing all this for the cause of Christ. Were they? No. The crusaders who mil murdered millions of Jews and Muslims were not doing that for the cause of Christ. They had not read their Bibles correctly. And so they greatly distorted the spiritual character of Christ's kingdom. We're not to be violent in our actions, in our words, or in our attitudes. Few things show the difference in Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world than this policy about fighting. The kingdom of God does not gain citizens or conquer by the sword of steel. How do we conquer and how do we gain citizens? By what sword? The sword of the word of the Lord. The sword of the Spirit. That's how Christianity conquers. In all of this, you see what Jesus was doing was still graciously reaching out to awaken the governor's conscience, telling him that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is of heaven. It's regulated by heavenly principles. It's unlike the kingdoms of men because it's holy and righteous and pure. It's a kingdom everybody, Jew or Gentile, should want to be a part of. 
you know, he's reaching out to a Gentile. It doesn't matter to me, Pilate, that you're not a Jew. My kingdom is for everyone. That's what he's telling him. Problem was that the Jews weren't looking for a holy otherworldly kingdom, were they? Remember, even James and John wanted to sit on the right hands of an earthly kingdom where they'd have power and wealth and everything. The Lord Jesus was not the militant Messiah that they wanted. He did not come to establish his kingdom with force, but he does have a kingdom. And he was not as helpless as he appeared. You know, I wonder if when Pilate got the report, you know, he had to to give the Jewish authorities that cohort of Roman soldiers who went with Judas to the Garden of Gethsemane. And don't you think when they came back that they gave a report that when they, when Jesus identified himself with just two words, ego ime, I am, all of them fell backwards? I don't, I don't know if he got that report. I, he would have gotten that report if they knew they had done that. Remember we said maybe they were just like in a daze or a, and didn't even know, remember that that had happened. But if they knew it had happened and remembered, surely he would have heard about it. Nevertheless, there had been no resistance from him. You know, there was one, that one little swipe of an ear, but he put an end to that. There was no fight. He meekly surrendered to the authorities. And now look at him. He hardly looked the part of a king. So it was confusing. It was very confusing. A man with, with such power as Pilate knew Jesus had, even if he didn't know about the Gethsemane I am business, he knew about his power from all of his miracles. And yet he was not using that power to conquer. A man with so many servants willing to follow him, not using those servants to, to fight. That All of that is so perplexing to Pilate. So rather puzzled, he asked Jesus again. And this is in verse 37. Art thou a king then? What Jesus had been saying was really more than, than Pilate could grasp. The Lord's reference to his not-of-this-world kingdom, his calm, composed, dignified, authoritative confidence, his countenance, even though in bonds and facing a death sentence, his assertion that he had servants willing to fight if his kingdom was of this world, and his strong hint that his kingdom would yet be established when he said, but now is my kingdom not from hence. All of those things together, you have to take all those things together. Even though not understood, yet Pilate did get one thing out of all of it. He understood that Jesus, or two things, he understood, number one, that Jesus definitely was claiming to be a king. He definitely understood that. And yet, he also understood that the type of king he was claiming to be was not one who would threaten Caesar. Not the kind of king that he needed to be concerned about politically. To Pilate's question, art thou a king then? The Lord boldly affirmed that he is indeed a king. He said, thou sayest that I am a king. Meaning, you are right, I am a king. And then what does he go on to say? To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. Now, if you, if you just took that and stopped, you'd think that what he's saying here is, for this end was I born, for this reason I came into the world, is to be what? A king. That's what it sounds like. But you have to finish reading the sentence to get what he's really saying. He says, to this end was I born, for this cause came I into the world, that what? That I should bear witness unto the truth. What he's doing here is really indirectly giving Pilate the answer to his previous question, what hast thou done? He was saying, the thing that I have done, the thing that I was born into this world to do, now being born into this world speaks of what? His humanity. He was born into this world, right? That speaks of his humanity. And then when he says, and I came into this, the thing I came into this world to do, what does that speak of? His divinity, his deity. It's just like Isaiah where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Here he's talking about both his humanity and his deity. He says, the thing I came into this world to do, and the thing that so angers the Jews that they now want you to crucify me, is that I have spoken what? The truth! That's what I came in the world to do, is to speak the truth. Not just truth, the truth. So how do you and I advance Christ's cause in this world? 
How do we do it? We speak the truth. We don't do it by physical violence with the sword of steel, but by truth, the sword of the spirit. We're not to overthrow earthly governments. Now, we do our part when we go to the polls, like my daughter who lives in Virginia is going to go to the polls today and cast her vote. We do our part as good citizens, but we're not to overthrow earthly governments by the sword of the steel. We are to bear witness of the truth to those earthly governments. Christ's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom of truth. It's by truth that we conquer, isn't it? Do you know why this country's in the shape we're in? Because it's because of those sitting, standing behind pulpits like this that have watered down the truth. That's the reason we, you know, and so people are not hearing the truth in their churches and they're compromised so much with the world system like of evolution and taking away all the fundamentals of, of the faith that people, so many people say, why even bother to go to church? It's almost the same as what's out in the world. And so people falling away by the millions out of churches and there's very few churches left that uphold the truth and don't dilute it. And that's why our country is spiraling downward because of, because of getting away from the truth. If Jesus had meant to declare himself an earthly king, he would have said something like this. He said, for this end, he would have said, for this end was I born to rule the nations and to conquer all its emperors and kings and to take possession of all its kingdoms. But instead, he said, and one day he will do that at his second coming. But at this point, he said, the whole reason he came into the world was to be its witness of the truth. He rules as king in the minds and hearts of those who believe his truth. All right, I'm getting, let's see what time is this bad news. <laughs> He's still fishing for, for, um, for men. He's still trying to gain Pilate's a personal interest when he then adds these words, everyone that is what? Of the truth heareth my voice. Only those who are of the truth will hear his voice. He's still trying to get Pilate's interest. What does that remind you of? What other verse? My sheep hear my voice. But things were getting too complex, they were getting too confusing, too uncomfortable for Pilate. This man was just too different. And if he stood there much longer listening to him, he might actually get curious about his teaching. And so this had to end. Pilate wasn't a Jew. He didn't care about Jewish ideas regarding truth. It certainly had made them no better than he was. You know, if he looked at the Jews, they were more conniving, more um, prejudiced, more hypocritical, more greedy, and more ambitious than he was. So why would he be interested in a Jewish man talking about truth? Besides that, you know, besides the fact that this man was really nothing like them, still he was a Jew. And also, you have to remember at the time Pilate lived, there were so many differences of opinion out there. There were the Stoics who were or her, who were teaching what they believed in. There were the Epicureans, and then there were all the different um, philosophers from the Greek era and from the Roman era in which he lived, and then there were just all kinds of different religions. There were all kinds of people who were always debating and arguing and fighting about truth and never coming to any conclusions. And so, with cold sneering, and probably some level of despair, what does Pilate then ask? What is truth? Now, here's another homework question. This is the last one I'm going to give you. In your homework this week, I want you to answer that question as Jesus might have answered it if Pilate had stayed around to hear his answer. How, what might he have heard from Jesus in answer to that question? He didn't stay there. He turned on his heels, which tells us he wasn't interested in the answer. He immediately turned on his, his heels and he left the room. But what might he have heard if he had stayed around? His question was to totally asked in cynicism, disbelieving that anybody could ever know the truth. You know, in Pilate's political world, truth was not an issue. There's a lot of people out there. Are they seeking for truth? Are they even interested in truth? It's not even a factor in their lives. They just, I guess, I don't know what they think. I guess they figure out when they die, they'll find out what truth is. Kind of late then, isn't it? <laughs> but 
Men like him were not interested in seeking truth. They were interested in, like so many people today, in just living the moment, day by day. They were, they're interested in pleasure, power, position, intrigue, but not in holy matters and not in integrity. Cynicism about truth is really a cover-up to justify one's own behavior and thinking. It's a shame. Pilate asked the right question. What is truth is the right question. And he asked it of the right person. Who better to tell him what the truth is than the truth incarnate, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life? The tragic thing is that Pilate didn't care enough to hear the answer. He didn't have the patience and he didn't have the desire to persevere in a search after truth. Nor did he have the humility. You have to have humility to receive the truth. He didn't have humility or sincerity to receive it. What do you think if he had stayed around and Jesus gave him the truth? What do you think? I don't think he would have received it anyway because I don't think he had the humility or the sincerity to receive it. But although he turned from Jesus and left his presence, by his next words, we do know he had been impressed. He had been impressed with his interview. Because what does he say when he goes out to the Jews? He says, he, um, I find no fault in him. I find in him no fault at all. Now, at all is in italic, so he didn't say that. But he says, I find in him no fault. That's his first time of declaring that Jesus was innocent of the accusations, including the accusation that he was a threat to Caesar. Now, if he had done what he should have done right then and there and released his prisoner, he had just said he's innocent and he should have released him. If he had done that, Pilate would have gone down in history as an ideal judge and a man of integrity. But he made a mistake and he continues to dialogue with the Jews who are thirsting for Jesus' blood. And we know that does what he does what? He begins to compromise on what he knows is truth, <laughs> that Jesus is innocent. And therefore, Pilate's name has not and never will be equated with integrity. What do we equate his name with? What's an adjective when you think of Pontius Pilate? I think of a wishy-washy politician, compromiser. Yes. All right. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. Okay, first question is answer his question, what have, what have you done? How would Jesus have answered Pilate's question, what have you done? And secondly, how would Jesus, in, in your opinion, this is just a creative thing, but um, use scripture, of course, make it biblical. Second one would be what might Pilate have heard if he stayed around to hear Jesus' answer to what is truth? Okay, all right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this time together. I pray that you bless each woman. Um, help her to, to be salt and light this world this week as we go out into the world. Help us to live um, righteous lives that, that men and women and boys and girls will look at us and want to know the truth about you. May we stand out as being uniquely different in a good, righteous way. Lord, I pray your safety on every woman. Put a hedge of protection around her and her family. Bring our lost loved ones into your kingdom before it's eternally too late. We love you, Lord, and we do thank you so much for the fact that you are the truth and you live in our hearts. So we pray in your name. Amen.